Hi, it's Victoria Stapleton from the Little Brown School and Library podcast. Thanks for being with us today. If you like our show, please do check out Fully Booked with Kirkus Reviews on the Podcast One Network. It's a weekly look at all things book, co-hosted by Kirkus Review Editor-in-Chief Clay Smith and staff writer Megan Labrice. Fully Booked features interviews with the authors you love and book recommendations from Kirkus Fiction, Nonfiction, YA, and Children's Editors. That's Fully Booked with new episodes every Tuesday on Podcast One, podcastone.com, and Apple Podcasts. Please remember to rate and review. Thanks for being with us today. Enjoy the show. Hi, everyone. It's Victoria Stapleton from Little Brown Books for Young Readers, and it is a fresh episode of the Little Brown School and Library podcast. We are here in the offices today with someone very special. I don't often get to interview live in person, but I am sitting next to the very delightful Julissa Arce. And she is very much alive behind the eyes, and she is very much bursting to share with you, so I'm going to get out of the way very quickly. But Julissa is the best-selling author of Someone Like Me, How One Undocumented Girl Fought for Her American Dream. And I think the American dream is something we've all been talking about quite a bit these days. I want to hear your version of it and the process of writing these books, first for adults and then for young readers, and what's so important for you to communicate to your readers. I'm so excited that you're here with us today. Welcome, Julissa. Thank you for having me. It's exciting to be here. You have had an action-packed life. Yes which I am frankly in awe of. What was the motivating factor for you to start writing these books? You know, the, the motivation behind writing my first book and my second book um, were quite different, mm -hmm. but I always found a sense of freedom in my writing because there was so much that I couldn't share with the world when I was undocumented. Right? Mm -hmm. Because when you're undocumented, especially when I was growing up undocumented in the, in the mid-90s, um, there wasn't this movement of young people who were almost proud of being undocumented and, as they say, unafraid and unapologetic. And um, I was very much afraid. And so the only times that I got to really share my thoughts about what I was feeling um, was in my writing, was in my journal. So I've always kept a journal since I was a little girl. Mm -hmm. um, and that's where I could really express everything I felt and everything I thought without any reservations, without anyone judging me for it, without anyone having to know what I was writing. It was just for me. And mm -hmm. so I very much feel like the first book that I wrote was for me. It was so that I could write my story into being so that I could stop being afraid, so that I could finally share with even my closest friends what I had gone through in my life. The motivation for writing someone like me for young readers is because I remember being in middle school and never once reading a book that had a protagonist like me, someone who was a brown girl, who had immigrant parents, who was reflective of my experiences mm -hmm. and and I think that, that that affected me a lot because it kind of made me feel like maybe I wasn't as important as the other kids right? because my stories were so important that there were books written about it. And so I want kids who have had similar experiences to me to feel like 
their experiences are so important that now people write books about them. And, and I want young readers to see themselves reflected in my experiences and in my book. And then for those young readers who, you know, perhaps don't identify with my specific circumstances, I still think that there is this universal truths in the book about belonging and about acceptance and uh, about wanting to be in the crowd. And I think, mm-hmm. you know, for any of us that have ever gone to middle school and high school, I think we can all uh, identify with that feeling of like, oh my God, I want to have friends and what are the things I need to do to have friends and like, do they like me? Do they not like me? Like, and, and so I think all of those things are, all of those experiences are, are universal and something that all young readers, regardless of whether they were born here or not, can identify with. I love the phrase that you use, write my story into being. I'm a big believer in kids writing and reading, but especially writing in that act of creation of determining for themselves uh, what their story is, what their identity is through the story. What was like the first inkling for you in writing your journals that you were taking? What was that first moment feeling of power as you were writing your journals? Can you discuss that transformation a little bit? Yeah, I remember my my first journal i i drew a lot before i started writing um because i felt like i I, there was this period of time in my life where i I, so i came to the u.s when i was 11 years old Mm -hmm. and so i was like in sixth grade um when i came here and so i would write in spanish but then i started learning english and kind of a little bit forgetting how to write in Spanish, but I didn't know English well enough to write in English. So so, so this first journals that I, I still have them and, and sometimes, especially when I was when I was writing, I was reminding myself of things I was feeling or um, or, or even the way that I wrote when I was when I was younger. And so I was looking through my journals and and I laughed a little because I'm like, I can't even make sense of what I wrote because like my grammar was terrible, you know, like, but that's, but that I think is the beauty of, of writing journals mm-hmm. is that you can write however you want. You don't have to think about where does a comma go or, you know, am I using the right, the right word or the right adverb? Am I, is my sentence structure correct? Like it really is for you. Mm-hmm. And there's so much freedom in that. There's so much freedom in just writing and just writing what you're feeling, what you're thinking. Um, I do think that sometimes, to be totally honest, I would write, and some, I still do that sometimes now when I write for myself, and I feel like I'm judging myself. You know, I'm like, oh, I really shouldn't write that. And then I'm like, wait a minute, stop. This is for you. This isn't for Nobody is ever going to read this. So you can write whatever you want. So as you were writing this book for young readers, and in the process of that, you mentioned looking at your journals again. And it's for you, but now you're writing for others. Yeah. I don't want to ask this in a, in a, there's a dumb way to ask this question because yes, gentle listeners, I'm undercaffeinated yet again. I don't want to talk about it in the sense of simply editing, but there were so many emotions and so much talking to yourself and processing for yourself. Were you surprised by what you read in the journals when you reread them as part of researching yourself for this book? Was there a sense of disconnection between, say, the first draft of your story in the journals and what you're presenting now for others and how you communicate. Yeah. 
so so even though I say you know this journals were for me like this book is is not for me right this book is for young readers mm-hmm. and I took a lot of I felt a lot of responsibility in writing a book for young readers versus my first book, My Underground American Dream, that was for adults. I kind of felt like adults understand and I don't need to be as careful in like what I say and how I present things mm-hmm. because they're adults. For this book, I think I was so... I, I wanted to be very thoughtful and caring about how I presented certain ideas and certain feelings because I didn't want... When you read the book you're going to see that there are some very difficult experiences that I talk about. Oh, yes. Right? From my, my dad used to hit me when uh-huh. I was a kid, and I think that's a very sensitive topic to talk to. And, it, I mean, it is a sensitive topic because you don't – I don't want to make it – I don't want to desensitize it. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the same time, I didn't want to present it in such violent terms that that parents would feel like, I don't want my kid to read this. Right? And at the same time, though – I know that there are still some young readers in schools today who probably are experiencing that very thing. Yeah. And so I want them to know that other people have experienced it too and that you are going to come out on the other side okay. And so that I think was was something that I that I that that was that was one of the things that I spent the most time crafting mm-hmm. um and you know Nikki, my editor, was so amazing in helping me find the right way to still keep these things in the book that was thoughtful, that was caring, and that would really help people, like young readers, be able to talk about it Mm -hmm. and also feel like if I am experiencing this, I need to tell someone about it. And I need, and and I'm going to be okay. Yeah, your empathy for the reader comes through very well, and I it is a well calibrated presentation. That eight to twelve age group is so difficult because, yes, we're going to talk about Nixon again, people. I'm sorry. Uh, I was a weird child, and at ten I was reading All the President's Men. It's a long story. <laughs> <clears throat> but my sister, who is a very smart person. Um, she was reading very different books at 10 because that just is where she was. And she's not as weird as I am. (laughs) I'm sorry about that, people. Um, But I think you really addressed it for, calibrated it well, so that kids who are at a variety of stages of development can really access the story in their own way. What I also like about this book is it makes for excellent family reading or parent-child reading it's very it's eminently discussable can you tell us a little bit about how much work you do communicating generally in your job that makes this so good because not everybody gets it no not everybody can do this no No, i'm not naming names on this podcast see me later (laughs) um well so most of the I've been professionally a writer and a speaker for going on three years. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the speaking that I do is at colleges and universities, Mm -hmm. which is a very different audience, of course, than this book, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, Well, I talk college kids. But I have have had the opportunity to... um, 
to go to several middle schools and even some elementary schools. Mm-hmm. And to be honest, I have been like terrified of speaking to these kids because I'm like, I don't, I don't, I don't have any kids. So I'm like, how do I talk to them and not be like, I don't want to ever be condescending to a young child, right? And be like, oh, I have to be so, like, they won't understand. And what I have been most surprised by in speaking to these kids is by their questions. Mm -hmm. Because the questions that they asked were so thoughtful and so insightful. I mean, these questions were sometimes even way better than any question that I ever get from you know, when I go to speak at college universities and like professional conferences, mm-hmm. I was like, oh my God, like they really get it. They really understand. And so I'm really glad that I had the opportunity to, to interact with um, readers 10 and up mm-hmm. um, because as I was writing this book, I thought back to those experiences. I thought, okay, I can actually talk about this. I don't need to like, quote unquote, dumb it down or, you know, I don't need to do that for this audience. Uh, because they get it and they will understand and having those questions in the back of my mind also helped me to to figure out what are the things that I need to answer in this book mm-hmm. and like what are the things that um, that is going to make a young reader turn the page yeah and um, I had the opportunity to give a, a, a advanced copy to several like middle school kids and I was so happy when uh, one of them sent me a note and said, I couldn't put your book down. And she said, um, she said, you know, my mom hates that I don't like to read, but I don't like to read, but I couldn't put your book down. And this is a, uh, a Jewish girl who lives in the Upper East Side of Manhattan. And so it has, you know, she's not even like sort of, can, it's not even like, what made me so happy about that is because, you know, here I am thinking like, all these brown girls and like immigrant kids are gonna like love this book. But here was someone who was who was who was not exactly someone like mm-hmm. me, who still couldn't put the book down. But that goes back to what you're speaking for about earlier about there are certain universal or okay, we'll go ahead with universal more general experiences of that anxiety of that age, because again, you're in the immigrant experience. She's on the Upper West Side. But there's still that I'm in middle school, and it is weird and strange and feral, and where is my place here? I I just want to belong. And I think a lot of people can, a lot of kids relate to that because that is their experience. And you've written, your prose is very, and we'll get to this question later, have you thought about writing fiction? (laughs) Because you have a a nice flow. You have a nice flow. (laughs) I just really love how that way that you've presented the story is so engaging at that at that bigger level or that less specific level. I'm not sure if I'm saying this correctly, but we'll move on. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think one of the great things about middle grade books um, in that age group is that, you know, that is where kids are really figuring out the world is not arbitrary. Yeah. The world is what adults make it. Mm-hmm. Like they made these rules. And now we, as as ten year olds, have to figure out how to navigate right. that. And I think that's particularly a strong element in your book because it's not like one day you decided I'm going to move to the United States right. as an eleven year old. That was not right my choice. So how did you think about processing your own reactions to your parents' decisions? So when you read the book, um, what you'll find is that there are many times when I was sitting in Mexico wishing that 
I lived in the U.S. with my parents, mm -hmm. and I would I would beg them to bring me to live with them in mm -hmm. the U.S. And it was a a a question that I was torn about even making because I also felt if I go to the U.S. to live with my parents, is my are my sisters going to come with me? Is my grandma gonna come mm -hmm. with me? My cousins. So so even even at that young age. I felt well with what a lot of immigrants feel, which is torn about wanting to be in two places at once. Mm -hmm. And then when I got here, and I talk about this in the book, of coming here didn't feel like a reward. Because if, if when you read the book, you'll read that I was getting into some trouble at school. And uh, because of that, my parents kind of finally decided it's probably not a good idea for a 10-year-old girl to be sort of living somewhat alone. I mean, I lived with my grandma, right? But mm -hmm. but without sort of parental mom and dad supervision, mm -hmm. so we're going to bring her to live with me. So when I came here, I felt like I was getting grounded. Like coming to live in the U.S. was a, a, a punishment in a way because of the circumstances in which I came here. So it wasn't this like happy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It wasn't this like happy like we love you so much that we're gonna bring you to live with us right it was it was you're misbehaving and therefore now you're gonna come live with us and so i think that you know i think that it really does the way that the message is delivered it really makes a big difference yeah. even if the ends are the exact same yeah right like i ended up in the u.s but but the process of getting here um made me feel a very different way and so and so those are the things that I was wrestling with at that mm -hmm. age. Was like, why am I here? And 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 very and then on top of that, I was dealing with um, going to a school where I didn't understand the language, mm -hmm. I didn't understand the customs, mm -hmm. I didn't have friends because I couldn't even communicate with anyone because my mom had this idea that if I went to an ESL uh, school, English for a second language, that people would think that I wasn't smart. And, mm. um, and, and, I, and, I, and I do think that even to this day that is a stigma, that if you don't speak English, you're not smart, when in reality it just means I'm you don't speak English. Different, right, exactly. And that's all it means, right? It's it, it's all it means. Um, but my mom just felt like she wanted me to have the best... It, she wanted me to have the, the best chance of success. And so in her mind, that meant you're, we're just going to throw you in an all-English-speaking school and you're going to learn and you're going to figure it out. And, and sort of all those choices, to your point about you don't make these choices. Mm -hmm. So all of these choices that my parents made for me, like bring me to live in the U.S., sending me to an English school, all of those choices were choices I didn't make. And then I did have to live with the consequences mm -hmm. of those choices. Though. And I mean, looking back on it, um, I'm very glad that my mom brought me here and I know that it wasn't my choice to come here. And the reason I say choice and not fault is because then it means that I would be blaming my mom for wanting to give me a better life and I can't ever blame her for that. Exactly. Um, <clears throat> I will say I relate to it quite a bit because my own parents um, could not live with each other. And there was a lot of like backing and forthing. And I was never allowed to 
decide what I wanted to do. And it's not exactly analogous, but getting to the universality of it, you had, a, you had your life in Mexico, you were living with your grandmother, you were having a great time, having fun, misbehaving, and then you're here. <laughs> and that's sort of like, I remember I came home one day, uh, I think I was in the first grade, and there was a moving van in front of my house, and that was the first clue that we were moving that very day. Mm. And I think a lot of kids experience that dislocation of my you know, say it's divorce and moving back and forth from parent to parent, or even moving cross country from all the friends that they know and love and talk about customs in a school. Yeah. Oh my goodness. So I think that there's that aspect of it that really is, is so universal and speaks to that hidden heart of kids. Yeah. That they have so much, they want to passionately express, but they just don't know how to do it. And I think one of the things that I, um, feel very proud about writing this book is that I didn't shy away from speaking about certain experiences where there just isn't a right answer. Mm -hmm. And I think that there's so many circumstances in life, whether you're a young child or you're an adult, where you're faced with having to make very difficult decisions that no matter what you choose or which path you decide to go down, it's not a perfect, neat, boxed answer. Mm-hmm. Right? So like when I was in Mexico, I wanted to be in the U.S. with my parents. Right? Because, yes, I didn't have this parental supervision, so I could come and go. And also the town that I lived in is such that my aunts and uncles all lived within five minutes of walking distance mm-hmm. from each other. So I would go from my aunt's house and go to another aunt's house. But there was also a sadness and a loneliness that came from not being with my parents, right? Mm-hmm. And so, again, like, so, so it, whether I stayed in Mexico or I came here, there was never going to be, like, a perfect choice for my parents to make um, or for me to, 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 I could have, I could have, like, not misbehaved because I did, I do think that I knew even at that age that some of my misbehaving, um, would mean my parents were coming home, right? Yeah. If, the par- if the principal wanted to see my parents, like my parents came home, right? And so I think I do think that there was some, some of that kind of yeah. going on in my mind. Yeah. Well, let's speak a little bit more specifically about your situation. Um, in addition to all of the other aspects of being in middle school and that is strange, and you're on the cusp of puberty, and we all know once your hormones kick in, you know, <laughs> bananas. But then um, to speak to the aspect of your childhood being undocumented in the 90s, which, again, we talk about consequences and choices and, and the stakes. How much of your psychology was taken at that age was taken up with dealing with your undocumented? How real a presence in your mind was that on a day-to-day basis? Because looking at kids right now who are dealing with that, I just cannot fathom how much psychological space that is required in their brains to just deal with that uncertainty, that additional uncertainty that puts pressure on their choices all the time, not just for themselves, but for their family. I I found out that I was undocumented when I was 14 Mm -hmm. um, because I I tell the story in the book of wanting to go to Mexico to have my quinceanera. Mm-hmm. And, and and for listeners that might not be familiar with the quinceanera, it's this really 
big party when you're 15. So imagine like a wedding without a groom or a bride. And that's the size of like it's I mean, right? it's, a, it's like it is a big. It's a big deal. It's a big party. Uh, and it's something that I had wanted since I was five when my sister had her party. And I just have been dreaming of this party since I was five. And my mom then revealed to me that my visa had expired. And because of some changes in their financial situation, we couldn't get a new visa. Mm -hmm. And going back to Mexico to try to fix my paperwork probably meant that I wouldn't be able to come back for like 10 years because of the way that the immigration system works in this country. And so, um, and so I find out I'm undocumented. But frankly, that night, that day when she told me you can't go to, she didn't use the word undocumented. She said you're undocumented. She said your visa expired, which now I know that meant I was undocumented. Um, that night, I cried and cried and cried about not having my party, not about being undocumented because the, the weight of what my mother had just revealed to me did not quite register in my 14-year-old mm-hmm. brain. It wasn't until once my mom told me this, then she really was like, you can't tell anyone. Right? And if you get caught doing these things, uh, you could end up getting deported. So when I moved to high school and um, there was some of, you know, going to, going to some parties with friends, for example, mm-hmm. like getting caught doing those things in my mind was like, oh my God, my life is going to be over. I'm going to get deported. Mm-hmm. Where like for, for a quote unquote normal teenager, you might get grounded or, or, in, or in trouble, but like, you're not going to be permanently separated mm-hmm. from your parents for like a long time. Yeah. Um, so, so those were the things that, that really did take a toll on me was thinking about every choice that I was making as like, life-altering decisions when they shouldn't have been life-altering decisions and when it really 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 hit me that I was undocumented was when I was applying to go to college Mm -hmm. that's the first time where I felt the heaviness of being undocumented Mm -hmm. and the unfairness of it all because you know I growing up I always my, my parents always said, you know, if you work hard and you stay out of trouble, you can do anything you want to in this country. Right? They, they so believed in the American dream and they believed in this very neat formula of you work hard and you stay out of trouble and you can be and do anything. They never kind of factor in all these other things about my existence in this country, which, you know, I am a woman, I am a Latina, I am, I was undocumented. And so mm-hmm. all of these things made it so that this neat formula didn't quite work, right? And so applying to colleges, graduating in the top 5% of my high school class, being on the dance team, being National Honor Society, being president of the Latin and Greek clubs, like none of those things mattered because the only thing that mattered was that I didn't have a nine-digit social security number and therefore I was getting rejected from like every school that I applied mm-hmm. to, even schools that that should have jumped up and down to have me as a student. I know. And right? so that was really oh. that was really difficult time. I can't I mean there's I'm not going to sh- shed it, show my scars on the podcast but you know having grown up with a non-traditional well, a problematic family, let's put it that way. 
I'm sympathetic to that dynamic. I can't understand fully what that is, but I, I think about how you, what you've written in this book for those kids who are experiencing that amount of, of is it too hard to say trauma? No, I think it is. It is a lot of trauma. And, you know, it's also, it's not just kids who are undocumented themselves. Mm -hmm. But in the U.S., there are at least 5 million children who have at least one parent yep. who is undocumented. So they are U.S. citizen kids. They were born here. But any mistake they might make, here's the police coming to your house to talk to your parents, and then they start asking questions right. about your parents. Right. So it's not, you know, it's not just undocumented yeah. kids who have to deal with this trauma. It's the phenomenon or the dynamic that we've imposed of this. I'm going to be very clumsy about this because I have a lot of strong opinions about how immoral <laughs> this is. I can use the word immoral. I'm a divinity school dropout. Um, <laughs> but just imposing that. And again, adult choices mm -hmm. imposed on kids. And I think one of the the great virtues and pleasures of someone like me for the younger readers is that it, I hope those kids, it builds empathy in kids who don't have to deal with this dynamic and it helps dissipate some of that sense of trauma in kids who do have to deal with this dynamic. Is that a good way to phrase that? Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I mean, I think that's absolutely right on because for kids who are going through this, I think that there is a sense of hope in my story yeah. and for kids who are not going through this exact thing that's exactly right that I really hope that it that it builds empathy and that not not just for people who are going through exactly the same thing but I really hope that the book builds empathy for people who are different from you I want to talk to you for like hours and hours <laughs> and I do want you to write fiction no I'm really serious about this <laughs> I think you you have a beautiful vibrant voice in this book that really captures the eye and the ear listeners you should read this book aloud you really really should so i'm gonna just and then i'm gonna talk to nikki your editor about it i really <laughs> think you should you should ponder this suggestion um but we have to be done with our episode is there one last thing you would want to tell our listeners of teachers and librarians out there in the virtual universe that i gesture to with my hand yes <laughs> um yes so I would say um, to teachers and librarians to please become familiar with the different um, laws that affect undocumented students in your school. Mm -hmm. Because even though things are very difficult for undocumented students, there are now 20 different states that allow undocumented students to go to college. Mm -hmm. There's an increasing number of scholarships uh, that provide financial assistance to go to college mm -hmm. and so so become familiar so that when a student comes to you and says I'm going through this that you can offer some guidance because that was incredibly important in my life and in um, in even believing that I yeah. could go to college it, believing that someone like me could go to college by the way, that's why I named this book Someone Like Me, because I kept finding myself saying, someone like me can go to college. Someone like me can become a vice president at Goldman Sachs. Someone like me can write a best-selling book. Someone like me can. Yes. <laughs> and very do it very well. Thank you. Julissa, thank you so much for joining us. 
today on the podcast. Um, this um, podcast is part of our Books Open Borders initiative that we're starting this year and that will be continuing on into 2019 to talk about books that deal with immigration uh, in its various forms, but also that sense of building empathy and that books can be an act of kindness. And I think your book is an act of kindness as well. So thank you for trusting us with the book and thank you for being here today. Thank you. Listeners, this has been Julissa Arce, author of Someone Like Me, How One Undocumented Girl Fought for Her American Dream. It's a pretty good dream. I am Victoria Stapleton, Director of School and Library Marketing at Little Brown Books for Young Readers. We will post some links to resources and act further acts of kindness on the page, on the book page on lbyr.com. And we'll talk to you again soon. Hi everyone, Victoria Stapleton back again. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Little Brown School and Library Podcast. We also hope you check out Fully Booked with Kirkus Reviews on the Podcast One Network. Again, it's a weekly look at all things book, co-hosted by Kirkus Editor-in-Chief Clay Smith and staff writer Megan Labris. Fully Booked features interviews with all these authors that you love and recommendations with Kirkus's editors. That's Fully Booked with new episodes every Tuesday on Podcast One, PodcastOne.com, and Apple Podcasts. And remember, Remember to rate and review. It really does help a lot. We'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.